Well, thank you. Uh, it's uh, really encouraging to see and hear uh, sustainable agriculture uh, catch on. Um, I've been at Dork College since 1985 and uh, published a paper where we tried to define sustainable agriculture in 1988, 20 years ago, and Wikipedia has copied parts of that. <laughs> but uh, my presentation will tie in very well, I think, with what, what Dave just did. Um, I'm also a, a teaching uh, ecological agriculture right now in session at Osabo uh, Pacific Rim, and so I'm skipping out, and so I have to leave uh, tonight uh, to get back tomorrow. But um, I'm very happy that, uh, that I can be here and just share a few things with you. Uh, also, for about 25 years now, I've been practicing something called on-farm research, where we empower farmers, and this happens to be in North America, but we empower farmers to actually do research on their own farms, and we, we know that we can set up these experiments so that they're statistically valid and we get results then that are more applicable to the farm than if they were using small plots, which are typically used in a lot of the uh, land-grant systems. When I uh, gave this title, I, I, I thought, you know, there might be some people here that are saying, you know, we've heard this New Hope for Africa about enough. So I go, New Hope for Africa again? And, and really, uh, this is something that is not totally new. I'm just carrying on sort of a tradition that actually was started, uh, the first time I'd heard it was a book by George Kinodi, uh, Hope for Africa and What the Christian Can Do. And uh, then also uh, in 2004 or 2005, Against All Hope, Hope for Africa. So I thought maybe I should title this New Hope for Africa again, because you see, it seems like we hear about hope and then it kind of goes down and we hear it again. Um, it's also not anything new than what I, uh, there's a book out called Biblical Holism in Agriculture. It's just about out of its first printing, but it's still available. And a lot of my ideas I've written in that book along with others. Africa is a paradox. Uh, it has abundant natural resources. You know, we hear of these deposits uh, right now in uh, Zambia and uh, areas around there. Copper is, is extremely high, so there's lots of mining going on. We have diamonds, oil. It's got tropical forests. It has rivers that are, you know, major, and it's got natural beauty. The idea of the uh, safari that you can take in Africa and one thing that it has a lot of is these vast open spaces of land. Now this is good, but it's also what, uh, in my view, is, is a bit of, a, of a, a, a thing to be concerned about. Because if you're an industrial agriculture mindset, you see this vast open area of land as if it were the vast prairies of the Midwest. And you think, this is something that we can go solve by putting our high industrial agriculture in there. And I'm suggesting that isn't the case. But it's suffering. We've got HIV AIDS, poverty, unemployment, 80% uh, in some countries. Land degradation, I'll give facts about that. Coarse grain production is stagnant. And uh, earlier Dave mentioned about the Millennium Development Goals. Well, this is... Uh, 
dealing with one of those goals, and it addresses the amount of people that are living on less than $1 a day. And if you look, Sub-Saharan Africa is, is leading that, and the, the little yellow point is the 2015 target, which we're halfway towards. So are we going to make those? I don't know. But this is uh, an area then that I'm going to deal with is Sub-Saharan Africa. And again, um, where is the most population that's undernourished? You can see there's a large section of it in Africa, and uh, that's the area that I want to address. Now, to make some examples uh, to point out what I showed in the one slide, if we compare, for example, coarse grain production in the U.S., Asia, and Africa, it, you can see that there's been an increase. But if you look at Africa, it has been stagnant. It's been the same. It has stayed the same. And one of the reasons why is that the Green Revolution never made it to Africa. The Green Revolution never really took foot in Africa. And part of it is because the crops grown there were not the ones that were really worked at by Norman Borlaug and those people. We see lots of land degradation. And um, these are just, just factors to, to prove and back up what I said earlier about the fact that we've got this degradation. What is amazing to me is the amount of soil loss that is occurring. In the U.S., North America, we figure maybe five tons is an allowable limit. There's some question whether that's even a good figure. But in Africa, it's... Uh, Losing some places are losing more than that uh, per year, and and with that goes a lot of nutrients because the nutrients are part of the soil, especially when we talk about uh, phosphorus, where it's very closely attached to the soil. So as the soil leaves, so does the phosphorus, and these are some of the countries that are affected. Now the point of my whole presentation, in a sense, is that well-meaning people have gone into Africa doing lots of good things, but they forgot one thing, and that's the soil. And because they don't understand the soil, we haven't done much to increase food production. And so I think the, the point that I really hope to get uh, point <laughs> home here today is that's changing, and I think it's good. One of the things, too, in Africa is climate is not determined necessarily by temperature, like we think of in the temperate uh, parts of where we live here in North America, but it's more by rainfall. And again, seeing these vast prairies in, or savannas in Africa, we must not try to think of them again as the breadbasket and try to put the type of farming that we use in the breadbasket region into Africa. And so I just want to reinforce that again. Now, while the Christian missionaries did wonderful things, and they were, you know, it was great that they were there, some of the unintended consequences were not probably very good for the soil. And one is the idea that plow agriculture, you know, brought, was probably bought, brought there, and, you know, that type of agriculture where you tilled was not good for these soils. These soils were easily compacted, and again, this is a generalized statement because there's different soil types, but that was one of the things. And uh, 
Another thing is a lot of new world crops came. Now, Martin talked about getting crops and moving them around the world, and someone asked a question about exotics. You know, in my view, there's not a big issue about whether we ought to have maize in Africa. But what is happening is the maize breeders, the corn breeders, are not in Africa. They're in North America. And so if we're going to put crops like maize in Africa, then we've got to have breeders trying to breed crops that are appropriate for Africa. And, you know, there's another thing. Maybe sorghum is a better choice. Very similar, more drought tolerant. I'll talk about that. But a big issue also right now is most African nations do not want GMO crops. And it's getting harder and harder for corn breeders, well, for people who buy corn to buy non-GMO corn. The breeding is going into the GMO and, and the others are being ignored. The reason why some of the African countries are opposed to this is because they have a market with Europe and Europe is quite picky about what crops they will take if they're genetically modified. The U.S. at least pays lip service to the idea that soil is important. And of course, those of you who may be old enough to remember the Dust Bowl days, when Franklin Roosevelt became president, he really emphasized the importance of soil. And this is a quote that he uh, said. And he sent his Secretary of Agriculture, I believe it was in 1939 or 1940 in that era, to travel around the world to find out why civilizations failed. And so he traveled all over uh, northern Africa, uh, France, through Europe, and so on. And he basically, and this is something you don't read in your history texts, is saying that land, or that uh, uh, nations failed because of lack of care of soil, siltation of ca uh, ca uh, canals and that type of thing. And the USDA, this is still on their website. You can get this right from the USDA's website yet. The conquest of land over 7,000 years. And, and it's, it's amazing that that's, uh, that's still pertinent. And, and in, until we get to ocean um, feeding the world right now, it's hard to believe. And people think we can live off something else. But civilization really depends on that top 12 inches of soil. There's, there's no way we can get around that. Uh, even if you don't ever see soil and you live in a, in a place where you, you never have to touch grass or ground or whatever, but that is true. I want to talk a little bit about burning. Dave mentioned that too. Uh, there are some good reasons for burning. There's a good reasons for people in Africa burning. It did control pests and uh, it did clear dead vegetation, and they could manage the savannas and so on for, their, for the livestock. But what happens is, and because of pressure from population, these burns you know, are, are becoming too close together, the soil's being degraded, and it's not, it's not something that can be carried on. And then, this is the big thing, what we really want is the carbon that was burned, you know, instead of burning it and putting it in the air in the form of carbon dioxide, that carbon we want to get in the soil. Carbon in the soil is a basis for all organic matter. 
And so that is probably the, the uh, big issue here, what, what I see with burning. And I think yesterday we saw um, a presentation that talked about where we're having more fires than, than in normal. And if you looked at Africa, that was one of the hot spots. Well, what's happened is the percent of money that was going into agriculture has been dropping uh, on a worldwide basis. And so there's been an idea that somehow we could get by, you know, food comes from the store. We don't have to worry about that. And Africa's a long ways away, so, you know, let's just be happy. But reality is that actual spending has dropped uh, in the past. Now, the good news is coming up, so I don't want you to be too uh, this, uh uh, disappointed yet, but um, we're seeing this happening. We're we're seeing maize yields in in the sub-Saharan about that, and the family needs about that. So they're not gonna they're not gonna make it. They aren't gonna make it. They're starvation. Soil erosion right now on is is you know 15 tons a year. Earlier I showed you that it could be over 22 in places. 15 tons of year a year uh, erosion. And here's another thing. Farmers have a poor self-image. Uh, farming is considered, um, especially, it depends what country you're from, but uh, I know in, in Uganda, a good friend of mine has told me that, you know, the lowest uh, social stratus there is a farmer who doesn't have any animals. And if you're animals, you move up a little higher and, and, and it goes on. Now, in the U.S., at, at least, you know, in the 1860s, we passed the, the Morrell Act, and we had the land-grant uh, institutions that came as a result of that. And farming was, uh, you know, praised. And we had the agrarian view of Thomas Jefferson, who said, you know, farming is the most noble occupation. So we, our leaders in the past, at least, have elevated um, you know, the image of agriculture to a noble profession. I don't know whether that's true anymore, except uh, when I hear people complain now about high gas prices and uh, blame it on the ethanol or something like that. Suddenly, there's, there's an interest in agriculture again, and I'm not a promoter of ethanol. What we also see is rural people moving to cities in, in Africa. And this just adds to the squatter problem. And now you have a landless people, so they can't grow food. And, and so if, if you, you know, have the poor self-image, then, you know, the idea is, well, we're moved to, to the city. And, uh, you know, on the roads from, from Nairobi, uh, people just standing there you know, begging for jobs, looking, looking for, for work, and they, they used to have land. In Africa, poor peasant farmers account for over 80% of the population. So it seems to me if you're trying to help Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, you can't, you can't do anything except address that problem where 80% of the people are involved in, in agriculture living on the land. And in the past... Uh, you know, money has been for roads and, and there's good parts to that or dams or things like that, uh, HIV prevention, all good things like I, I uh, mentioned in my abstract. But if, if, you, can, if you ignore this, these two facts of uh, 
the peasant farmers accounting for that much of the population and the degradation that we see, you're going to not solve the problem. So they need to import grain annually. Uh, a good friend of mine in Liberia told me that the USAID money is used by the government to buy food for the population because if they didn't do that, there would be riots. And you've heard of right, the food riots in other parts of the country. So it's, you know, and, and the Chinese are buying their, their, their timber and so on. And so uh, he was quite despondent. But again, there's some hopeful there too. So I'm suggesting that people in rural areas practicing good agriculture can experience economic gain and reach their God-given potential. And this idea of the farmer being such low social status, um, you, you know, I, if we look, uh, my people from Food for the Hungry tell me God was the first farmer. I go, really? Yeah, God planted a garden. He was the first farmer. And just among Christians, that gives the peasant farmer the new hope or the new idea that, that his job is worthwhile. And so I'm suggesting that an increase in appropriate knowledge will result in more food being produced, less starvation, more income, and more demand for goods and services. This is a little bit what Martin was saying earlier. And I call it my trickle-up idea. Not trickle-down, trickle-up. Okay, So we start with the peasant farmer. The peasant farmer, using appropriate uh, techniques and, and so on, will have more income, will have less starvation, and will need to buy things. And then if he needs to buy a hoe, there will be a hoe maker that will make it. And, and it will go a long way. Now, just to show you... Um, I've been working with the university in Zambia, and that to me is one of the most hopeful signs that I'm going to end with. Uh, and, and I just, they showed me a picture of the soil before I was there, and I guessed what it would be. And this, this represents, uh, I think, maybe 100 samples averaged out compared to the prairie soils. And so what I don't want people to do is think, well, we can, we can do these, this industrial agriculture like we do in the prairies. You can't, okay? It's totally different. Um, and they have, they're very weathered. They're going to have aluminum and iron toxicity issues. Um, I don't want to get too technical here. But our soils in North America generally, except maybe in the far southeast, are young soils. They're prairie soils. They're, they're high organic matter, 5%. We heard uh, last night... Uh, we saw the picture of the 5% organic matter, the 1% organic matter in, in the water, and which one you know, held the most uh, water. So these are the five golden rules of human tropics, and I'll, I'll submit these are also very applicable to North American agriculture, but often ignored. But it, the same thing applies. Maximize organic matter production. Keep the soil covered. Grow something at all times doesn't mean you have to harvest everything all the time. I'm going to talk about cover crops. Dave mentioned that. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Use minimum or, or zero tillage. Maximize diversity. Industrial agriculture is built on monocultures. 
Monocultures are extremely hard to maintain. High energy. And I, I was just about ready to jump up, but I didn't when Dave called those things efficient and then he put the question mark. They're very inefficient. Energy-wise, they're, they're very inefficient. Labor-wise, they're very efficient. Energy-wise, studies have been done and, and probably hand agriculture in Mexico is like, I, I have the figures, but I, I shouldn't say them because I might be off. But it's very, if we look at energy in and out, which is energy is a big issue right now, our, our, uh, our uh, industrial agriculture is about 2, 2.4 to 1, something like that. And the others are, you know, 10 times, 20 times, way higher than that. I can't remember exactly. Use mulch. Well, I'm going to give you a few practical pictures and examples here. Uh, one is alley cropping, and this is a polyculture. Dave mentioned that. And we don't do polycultures in the U.S. very often. Our equipment is not set up for that. And so if you're going into another country and you've got the mindset of American agriculture, you've got to change it because it doesn't work. So here's a... Uh, alley cropping where we have trees that are grown and then uh, in between the tr uh, trees are either cover crops or um, a traditional crop that could be grown there and you would probably leave the uh, green manure, you know, leave that lay fallow for one year and then the next year you would, okay, I'll go fast. And maybe a nitrogen fixing tree. Now this is what it would look like. Now, what are the benefits? We get organic matter from the leaves of the trees. You can actually uh, coppice the trees, cut the tops off, and the low carbon to nitrogen ratio of the leaves can be used for mulch, and the nitrogen can be actually leached out from the heavy rain into the soil. Windbreak, erosion control, the trees have deeper roots. They fix the uh, biologically. They're, they may compete with other crops, with the crops. So what do we do? We, we plant these in hedgerows, and here's what it looks like, and that's what a mature maize would look like. And this is a real busy uh, diagram, but just notice that the peak yield there in 1995 was of a, a plant called a genus Senna and fertilizer. And if you look at... Uh, sent out without fertilizer, it was still very good. My point is this. We can get nitrogen in these systems, and nitrogen is the hardest of the three macronutrients. We can get nitrogen in the systems without having to buy and apply synthetic fertilizer. And here's what I just did some quick figuring based on organic matter that came back from the soil samples from Zambia that if we would take the nitrogen-fixing tree, the fixation of nitrogen, biological nitrogen fixation from the cover crop, we would end up with enough nitrogen to supply adequate for a maize yield. And to me, one of the great things about the biological nitrogen fixation is uh, it's just something that God created, this triple-bonded molecule that's above the ear in abundance, and we have these rhizobium bacteria breaking that down using solar you know, plant solar energy to do it. It's a, it's a, a miracle almost. There's a technique uh, called Farming God's Way, uh, developed in Zimbabwe. And, and even though um, Mugabe is still president, there's some good things happening there. But it's, it's, it's a technique. And uh, we need techniques. 
But I'm suggesting we need more too. Uh, legume cereal systems, we don't do that in the US. Uh, my PhD research did something with land equivalent ratios. You get more yield when you put them together, but we're not set up that way, so we just ignore that type of thing or it's far down in our, our uh, uh, radar. So we put cowpeas, a legume, and uh, sorghum, which is a native plant. We could grow those together. They have different root structures. Sorghum is better in, in a wide variety of soils. Um, it's native to Africa. That's what it looks like. If you're from Kansas, you might call it Milo. Here's one, this is new. This is within the last few years. They found out that in, in some of these tropical soils in, in uh, the Amazon re region, they were totally black. They had been farmed for 40 years and they seem to have high yields yet. Why? And it's really pure carbon. And if you think of the cation exchange capacity that I talked about earlier, if we can get the carbon back into the soil, and it, this is amazing stuff that's, that's coming out. Here's another hopeful sign. The Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa, it's African-based, not, not US-based, African-based. Soil health is a big part of it. This is what Kofi Annan, chairman of the board, used to be uh, chairman of the United Nations. They are the poorest in the world aims to revitalize their soils. This is exciting stuff for me. This is what Gordon Conway said, he used to be a past president of the Rockefeller Foundation. The real revolution must be the starting point. It must start with the small farmers of Africa and put them on center stage. <laughs> Amen. Uh, this, is, this is exciting stuff. And finally, people are starting to realize that. And I just hope that in five years or 10 years, I can give you another presentation about all that's happened. But, I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, the funding's increased for the, uh, to the World, World Bank. And what I really am encouraged about is Christian colleges are starting to get excited about this and starting up in Africa. I'm an educational consultant to one that I'll share in a minute. I, I've been another one to a new one uh, that will happen in Liberia. I know there's another one that's in, in Uganda that's uh, heading this way. But this is the kind of stuff that that we're getting. And this is in the uh, Yapshi Contact uh, newsletter, which stands for the International Association for the Promotion of Christian Higher Education. So, you know, we've got a lot of Bible colleges in Africa, but they've, they've, we to me, we ought to have soil science in that Bible college, or we need to have comprehensive universities that cover both of that. This is the university that I'm working with, and uh, there's just two to three years old, and uh, they have a school of theology, a school of business, and they're working on a school of agriculture. And I've, I'll be working with them over the next few years on this. African-based, African solutions. Uh, I'm just a catalyst. And I am so excited about these kind of things happening, that the Christian college community, because we need technique, but we really need policy, research, so that's technique is needed at the present time because that's where the, the level of education might be. Okay. Do I have time for a question? We have time for one or two brief questions. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Okay, tilling at a, mac at a minimum level will be productive. Well, 
if I was going to say ideally, I would say no tillage. But one thing that tillage does do is it, you know, it gets rid of weeds. It may bury weed seeds and that type of thing. But even from research here in North America, we know that any time we turn the soil over, carbon goes into the air. So it isn't a very good thing. But it's very hard to convince people in developing countries that they don't have to till. It, was, it still is for our farmers, too. Because the idea of the, the straight furrow and all the black soil, just think of all the metaphors that you hear. You don't want to see residue on top. So I would encourage and promote no-till. In your garden? Do you want to repeat her question? Uh, her question was, if I, tell me if I'm mistaking it, but what are the advantages of minimum till? Or what is the... Well, there's, there's lots of it in the U.S. And oh, I'd say you could go to uh, anyone, like the website for integrated pest management and look up tillage. Uh, there's a real push among the USDA to quit tilling and use chemicals because it's better for the soil. Because what's happening is we're burning up our carbon as we till. Well, thank you, Dr. Moss. Very interesting. <laughs>